I've seen you uh, speaking to many aspiring artists today. Do you have any basic advice that you give to everyone that, that shows you their work? Oh, yeah, like stay away. I don't need competition. I'm getting <laughs> old, too old to have young people coming in. Um, well, primarily, the one thing which is very hard um, for a lot of young people to come in, and the way the business is today, is to come in for the sheer love of drawing or writing, and not just to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the old thing when, uh, when, when doctors in the old days, you just hear, we're going to, medic- we're going to medical school because we want to help society, as opposed to, I want to buy a new Porsche. Um, that you should have a great love for storytelling. If you're, if you're an artist and you want to show your work, and you obviously have to build a good portfolio. Remember, for every Superman, there's a Clark Kent. For every dynamic person in tights, you should be able to draw a normal person, able to sit at a table, at a desk, in a subway station, any, obviously my New York roots, um, <laughs> anything that's normal. Um, so many people are so uh, into the, the cyberpunk look or the, the superhero in tights look that they forget that the thing that makes them uh, super is comparison to normality right. and you have to always remember that you have to have some kind of foundation in reality to go f- to surreality and um, when you're doing comics for any artist who wants to uh, uh, show a portfolio when you're showing a portfolio do not show poster work because that's not what comics are all about what we're doing is doing storyboarding what we're doing is uh, pacing a story visually. You put your mind um, in the mode of a silent film camera, not a sound camera, wherein you're trying to impart as much information on a page visually to tell the person what's going on. You, they may not understand the nuances, they may not understand the whys and wherefores that the action is going on, but they can tell what's going on. The second a writer has to say, the person is walking down the street because you can't tell that the person is walking down the street means you have failed as a storyteller and that is very very important storytelling both as been up from the writer and artist point of view is fundamental to comics there have been a lot of artists myself included who got into the business not being all that polished as an artist but had a good knack for storytelling and they, they figured they can help you learn the basics of drawing but storytelling is, is such a unique uh, talent, a unique gift that you either have it or you can be trained to a certain point. But it, it, to be really good at it, it, it does require a, a basic understanding of visual uh, stimulation, of what makes something exciting and what builds up to it. And a lot of that is from reading. You learn a lot of drawing from reading because if you can read a story and visualize a scene, you're reading a quiet scene, it stimulates an image. Then you read an exciting scene, it stimulates an image, usually a more lasting image, a much larger image. So when you transfer that into storytelling, you do a, you lay out a page, you do smaller panels to do the setup. Then when you reach that uh, point of high emotion, a large panel to emphasize the same way it would react in your mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Back to the bin.
Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner. I am joined as always by my very good pal, Paul Spataro. Hello. Hello. And once again, you know, life is... uh, Life has not been very kind to the comics community in in recent times because uh, we're we're here again to discuss uh, the loss of another comics legend. You know, we we recently uh, said goodbye to comics great Neil Adams, and uh, just a very short while after that, we uh, we have to also uh, say goodbye to another comics legend. George Perez has passed away. And while his, uh, his, you know, we were aware of his illness and, you know, we, we knew that it was coming, it still, you know, it, it, for me, it didn't feel like it really softened the blow much. It, it was still really, really hard to get that news. Uh, what, did, what did you think, Paul? Well, uh, no, it was, it was a very, very harsh blow, to be honest with you. And, and knowing about it, actually made it harsher for me uh you know some some people know some people don't uh but i i lost well now it's 18 years ago but i lost a brother to pancreatic cancer and it's been a uh a very important uh thing for me i've done fundraising for research and and uh i it has a very personal connection to me because of that so when people, even when it's when even when it's people who I don't have a particular connection to, are reported to have pancreatic cancer, uh, it's always kind of a blow to me. And and uh, when you take it and you know have somebody who uh, who had an influence and and gave me such great enjoyment for so many years, it, it makes it even even more of a of a of a hit. So in this instance, knowing that that George Perez had pancreatic cancer and knowing that his 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 life was you know his days were numbered uh, for lack of a better term uh, was was very it was an emotional thing and and it, it was very bothersome and and you know what I can say is I totally respect the way he handled it because from every report I heard his his spirits were high throughout. And he was spending time with the people he loved and, and really uh, just making the best of his last days. So I, I take some comfort from that. Uh, but it's still, like I said, it still has a personal uh, level for me where it, 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 it will always bother me to hear of such losses. Absolutely. So now you know, we've talked. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we've we've talked a lot about George Perez over the years on this show. Um, you know, he's he's not only was he a legend, but I mean, he's a personal favorite of ours. You know, you, me, Doctor Bill. Um, now, Doctor Bill, um, I was going to say, couldn't be here tonight. Um, he he chose not to, and I I just wanted to throw it out there, you know, to the listeners that. Um, it was because, you know, like us, I, you know, this this came as a real blow to him, and um, so just you know chose not to uh, to be in on this one just because of, of the nature of the thing, and uh, I just wanted to respect that and uh, and acknowledge that, you know, for anyone that wonders, you know, why he he wasn't part of this recording, 
um, you know, death's not an easy subject, you know, for, for any of us, you know, to, to talk about or, you know, to deal with a lot of times. And, uh, yeah, this one's, this one's going to be an interesting one, I think, because we have talked a lot about Perez o- over the years and, you know, what he's meant to us, you know, the different works and everything. So, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of our favorites and everything. But, you know, for the purposes of this, in a lot of ways, we're doing kind of a standard episode in the aspect of, you know, we've we've each chosen um, a different work of Perez's uh, to take a look at, you know, in, in kind of a, uh, you know, in kind of a memorial fashion, I guess you would say. So um, I'm not really sure of the, of the backstory with, uh, with Paul's choice. With mine, um, this was just one of the big ones that really connects for me and, uh, and remains just, you know, a personal favorite, not only of, of Perez, but just, uh, of my whole collection. This has just always been one of my favorite issues. And, uh, so I, I hope I can do it justice when we get into it. But, uh, anything else you wanted to add before we dig into this one, Paul? Uh, yeah, I would just throw, you know, on top of that, that, you know, I, I totally agree with what you said about respecting the fact that Dr. Bill didn't feel comfortable you know, with the circumstances and everything. Uh, but what I, what I want to do, uh, and what I think we did with Neil Adams and what I'd like to do here today is not dwell on the sadness of his passing, but more celebrate his life. And I Absolutely. think, I think that's, that's the key to what, you know, what we can do with this. Uh, you know, George Perez is one of the, one of the first artists that I became able to identify his work when I saw it. Uh, and he's, right. he's, you know, in my top pantheon of artists. He's up, you know, in, in I would say in my top five of all time. Uh, so, you know, he, he has a special place for my collecting and my, you know, for this hobby that, that I've enjoyed so much, you know, for, to, I was going to say for my adult life, but it was also for a good part of my childhood as well. So for most of my right. life, you know, I've enjoyed it. And, you know, he's given me a great deal of pleasure. And like you said, we, we've talked about him a lot in the past. And, and I'm, I'm glad that we have. I'm glad this isn't something where we're just coming out of left field and saying, oh, yeah, by the way, we like this guy. Uh, I think every time we've hit on a George Perez issue, we've, we've you know, praised his work i don't think we've ever had one where we criticized his work uh i do recall once where we criticized the inking on his work right uh, <laughs> but other than that i, I think you know he, his it, it's interesting to watch his artwork as it progressed because you know you did see a, a maturation but from the very start it was always high quality even though it matured as it went on uh and uh, you know unlike neil adams I did not have any personal interaction with, with George Perez. Uh, again, you know, he, he was an artist who I recognized early on. It was an, he was an artist whose work I enjoyed, you know, from, from day one until whatever the last thing that I read that he did. Uh, so, you know, I, I wish I had the chance to meet him. I've seen him, you know, at conventions, but there was always such a crowd around his booth that I wasn't able to approach him uh i I remember seeing him on comic book men and he just seemed like such a uh like a jovial happy guy uh and and i i appreciate that about him as well so you know every every picture you ever see of him with somebody he's always got such a huge grin on his face uh 
and and I like to think that 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 was a true reflection of uh, you know of his personality. I uh, I actually did get to meet him once, and I'm trying to remember when it was. I think I think it was at Dragon Con. That would have been oh nine, I think. It's. It, I only ever went to. I only ever got to go to Dragon Con once um, while living in Georgia before moving here to Florida, and I'm pretty sure that was back in '09. And the reason I think it was that is I'm pretty sure Chris Honeywell was with me uh, when we got to meet him, and it was just. I mean, my memory of it's really fuzzy. I, I can remember wanting to to get him to sign my copy of. Logan's run number two, which I believe I brought with me. Um, if you want to know why specifically that book, go back and listen to our Logan's run retrospective. I went in depth about the whole story with that, so I'm not going to repeat it here. Um, but that book holds very special meaning to me. And my, my two big memories were that he was super nice, just really, really pleasant to talk to, um, really nice guy, very busy. He was really backed up at the time, which is why I ultimately didn't end up getting the book signed, unfortunately. Um, but I did get to tell him the story of the book and why I had brought that specific issue and what it meant to me and everything. And my impression was that it I didn't tell it well enough to really make a lot of sense, but he seemed to kind of get what I was going for. Um, my other lasting impression was that his handlers were really not friendly people at all. He was super nice, but the people that were kind of corralling for him, um, they were kind of rude. Um, so we ended up not waiting and not getting in line. As a matter of fact, I think... If I remember properly, they weren't allowing people to queue up at that time because he was so backed up. So it was one of those things where if you wanted to catch him, you were just going to have to keep checking back type of thing. But because that convention is what it is, it's just, you know, it's mammoth. It's nuts. Um, we just we weren't we knew we weren't going to be able to kind of circle back to it at that time. So it was just one of these like. You know, let's let's talk to him for the second that we get to talk to him and kind of enjoy it and move on. And, you know, hopefully there'll be other opportunities type of thing, um, which sadly now there, you know, there's not going to be. But it was one of those things where, you know, I was always hoping because he lives here or lived here in Florida um, for a time when I lived in Oviedo. He only lived just a town above me. So, you know, he actually wasn't that far away. And he was a regular attendee of uh, of MegaCon, you know, here in Orlando and everything. So, you know, again, it's just one of those things where, you know, you think you've got all the time in the world type of thing. And I always thought, you know, there'd be an opportunity again sometime to, you know, to, to meet him again and to, you know, have more interaction and to hopefully get some things signed or whatever. But it just never really worked out that way. But I'm glad, you know, to have gotten to meet him, you know, briefly as I did and, and get to tell him that story and everything. So, you know, unlike uh, unlike with Neil Adams, at least, I you know, I did get to have a, a slight interaction with him. And like I say, you know, just my, my lasting impression of him as a person was just, you know, just really a nice guy. You know, he was very pleasant to, you know, to speak with and everything. And 
uh, almost seemed like embarrassed by the fact that he just didn't have the time, um, you know, to interact more personally with everybody because, you know, he's just, he, he was a huge star. So, you know, his, his time was limited just because of all the, you know, the requests for everything, you know, signature sketches and all of that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> but yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was the only time I ever got to actually, you know, interact with him at all. So just to talk a little bit about his career, uh, I think we, you know, just kind of everything George Perez did was really good. Uh, again, I don't remember ever seeing anything where I thought his work was subpar. Uh, but his reputation, I think, became, you know, even more entrenched and more solidified based upon the fact that, unlike some other artists, he relished doing scenes with many, many characters in them. Uh, and it's, right. it's why, he, you know, he some of his most famous work is on the Avengers and on the Justice League and on the New Teen Titans and on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, you know, things where he just had to draw character after character after character. And I don't think anybody ever had a better reputation for that type of thing than him. Uh, and when they, you know, when they finally did the uh, Justice League Avengers crossover, I think he was the only choice that people wanted to to do the artwork for it. Uh, you know, he also was the original artist on, uh, you know, Infinity Gauntlet. Although he, I think he did like the first four issues, and Ron Lim did the last two, if I remember right. But you know, something he, like, yeah, something. He, like, but, yeah. but you know, he 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 was you know, if nothing, I, like I said, I don't think there's ever been an artist who had a better reputation as far as drawing uh, these scenes with multiple, you know, many many characters. And part of the strength was to make it look natural. Part of the strength was to still give everybody a little bit of a distinct look, and not just draw you know all these just interchangeable faces. Um, he he was he was a phenomenon. Uh, I think I said when we did the Neil Adams uh, tribute, my top three of all time have have long since been cemented as Neil Adams, uh, Jack Kirby, and John Romita Sr. And you can kind of just juggle that order however you choose. And then the next tier for me, the next just I can't even say below that. It's just that they come next. I think probably because they came slightly later. Uh, but the next tier is, is just two people, and it's George Perez and John Byrne. And you can put those two in whatever order you choose. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's how high esteem I hold him in. You know, it's just among the all-time greats. If they were going to make the Mount Rushmore of comic book artists, uh, as long as they had five faces on it, he's there. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I don't know that I could necessarily rank my, my favorites, uh, comic artists. You know, I, my, the, the list though of the, of the absolute top is, is, you know, the, the Mount Rushmore, so to speak, um, is semi solidified in my head though. I mean, I know definitely Neil Adams is there. Jim Aparo's there. Um, but like you, I also know that John Byrne and George Perez are there. I mean, I don't think you could be, um, you know, a comics fan who was a child of the 70s and 80s as I was, you know, growing up um, 
and, and getting that exposure to these guys as their careers were building and, and they were coming up too and, and just not be fans of them. Um, and, you know, you look around in, in my, you know, my, my comic room, theater room, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's kind of a combo thing. You know, the walls are covered, every inch is covered now with, uh, you know, comic book artwork and posters and such. And, you know, the two that dominate are John Byrne and George Perez. And I think Perez has probably got the most representation in that room uh, of any of the artists' works that are in there. Um, just because, you know, I'm, I'm just, I've always been a huge fan of his artwork. And especially, you know, like you said, those, those crowd shots, you know, there's so much of his work that I'm, you know, that I really like. And he's one of those artists that I have gone out of my way over the years to try to collect as much of his stuff as I can, you know, his different runs and things that he's done. Even sometimes on, on characters I'm really not interested in just because he's the artist. Um, but to me, you know, that, that hallmark and, you know, the thing that he'll probably best be remembered for, but I know I'll always remember him best for is that ability to just take these massive casts of characters and not lose anybody and give everybody their moment and, and just really make these, these huge ensembles exciting and thrilling and, uh, you know, to me, that you know, I, I think the, the the top of the heap for that is Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, that book still stands as the pinnacle that it does because of you know a lot of it is because of his incredible artwork. I mean, he was playing with pretty much every character in that universe as it existed at, at that time. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. You know, there, there was never really anything like that before, and there's never really been anything like it again. And the few times that there has been something similar, he usually had a hand in it, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, Infinity Gauntlet, like you mentioned, or... Um, you know, the, uh, the, the one that always comes to my mind is there was the spinoff from i think it was final crisis with the legion of three worlds so basically in that story he's dealing with three different incarnations of the legion of superheroes in one story so you've already got a massive cast of characters with the legion of superheroes now you have three iterations three different and distinct iterations of the legion of superheroes all in one story and he has to draw that and keep it all straight that's you know that's an incredible thing to ask of any artist let alone have them pull it off and he really really did regardless of what you think may think of the event or the story itself the art is not something you can fault in that story it's absolutely amazing the job he did with that massive cast of characters and then you know you mentioned it yourself, you know, JLA, uh, JLA Avengers, when that finally came to fruition. Now, I couldn't help but feel, you know, and, and I still kind of feel this way. I wish that JLA Avengers had happened when it was supposed to happen in the 80s. You know, I, I always wish that, that that book had actually 
really been a thing, you know, and, and gotten published as it was originally intended. But the the product that we ended up getting, um, art-wise, was just, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, you take either one of those teams, the JLA or the Avengers, either one of them, and look at their complete roster of characters, and it's like, oh my god, it's it's like a ch- it's practically a checklist of their respective universes. Now you've got a story where they're all in it together, and then the story just keeps topping itself with throwing more at you and more at you and more at you. So then, not only are you dealing with the JLA and the Avengers, you're eventually dealing with their entire rosters over the decades of their publishing, you know, histories, plus dealing with beats of their major crossover stories, including the crisis on infinite earth. So, I mean, you're just talking like the guys basically drawing everybody from two universes that have been around, you know, since the thirties. And that's just nuts. And I cannot think of any other artist that I think would have been up to that challenge either then or now. Um, he was the guy for that sort of thing and you know, never slackened. And that, that's, that's a remarkable testament to you know, his ability. I totally agree with you, and I couldn't have said it better. In fact, uh, I said it, and then you said it better. <laughs> Well, I wasn't trying to play one-upmanship, but it's just, you know, it's, it's honestly how I feel about it. You know, the, the guy was, was amazing. And I like the fact that he always gave the impression that he was having the time of his life. You know what I mean? There, there's some artists that you learn about, you know, it's, it's one of those things we've talked about before about, you know, the dangers of finding out how the sausage was made, you know, where you find out that, you know, whether their work was excellent or whether their work was subpar, you find out that at the end of the day, eh, it was just a job for me. Or sometimes you find out they actually hated what they did. You know, they, they labored in comics for all those years, but they actually hated it. You know, they were actually a, a frustrated author or something like that. But with George Perez, you know, the man always gave the impression that he was doing exactly what he wanted to do and what he felt was God's work. This is what God wanted. You know, this is what God put him here to do. And by God, he was doing it. And you got to respect that. There's something really awesome about that. I, again, especially when they're great at what they do. And uh, and that was always the thing with him. Yeah. I. You know, we I've said it on numerous occasions. I've said it with comic books. I've said it with music. I've said it with movies. It to me, it's always more fun to enjoy any type of art from people who you feel like are enjoying giving you their art. Right. And, and Perez always gave that impression. Definitely. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I, I guess you know, like I said, as far as the man goes, I could just say, from what I saw, he always had a smile on his face, and. Uh, you know, I think he brought a lot of joy to people. Uh, so I'll, I'll just tip my hat to him in that respect. But in the meanwhile, we're going to cover uh, two of his books. All right. As if we haven't covered George Perez books in the past. <laughs> 
Well, you know, that said, we have. We've covered a lot of his stuff over time. You know, uh, I was just looking here. I had uh, Mike's Amazing World open looking at his credits. And, yeah, we've covered a ton of stuff. I mean, just uh, just Creatures on the Loose alone, we've covered a lot of his work on that with uh, with the Man Wolf. Uh, you know, I know we, we touched on... Uh, you know, his very first work in Astonishing Tales with Deathlock. You know, we've, we've looked at a lot of, you know, we've looked at the entire run of his uh, with Logan's run. We've talked about, you know, some of his FF work, uh, Thing versus Hulk. Um, you know, all kinds of different things here we've looked at. But despite all of that, uh, the book I brought today is one I've always wanted to talk about you know, on a podcast and just hadn't gotten around to it yet. Um so my book, what I'm bringing for this one, is Justice League of America, number 193. This is the August 1981 issue. It's actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on May 7, 1981. Cover price on it is 50 cents. Cover is by George Perez, and it depicts... Now, this one, if you, if you know this one, you're, you're going to instantly know the one I'm talking about. So there's a little sidebar on the left-hand side of the cover that shows, it says, Extra, meet the sensational all-new All-Star Squadron in a special free 16-page comic. And it shows kind of the, uh, the pseudo-cover of uh, what's you know, come to be known as All-Star Squadron Zero. Um, it was just a free insert within this issue, but... The actual artwork then for George Perez is, is actually kind of it's kind of squashed a bit because of this sidebar, which is a shame because I actually hunted up and I posted it in our uh, Facebook group for Back to the Binge. You can go take a look at it. I actually chanced across on the Internet the actual penciled and I think it was inked as well. I could be wrong. Maybe it was just penciled, but the original art for this cover uh, much larger than it appears on this cover because you've got you know the giant Justice League banner, you've got that sidebar. So his art, unfortunately, is kind of kind of crimped into this you know this space that it's in. But man, it's still awesome. Um, this just absolutely jumped off the stands at me in uh, in 1981, and uh, and just made me buy it just on the power of this cover. Um, I, you know, I'd always been a fan of these characters. I, I'd always, you know, I've always been a Superman fan. I always liked uh, Firestorm. You know, the other characters I kind of like. I always liked the concept of the Justice League of America. But as a child, I would just be almost invariably disappointed when I would get my hands on an issue and I'd open it up and I just always felt that the art was just so subpar. It just wasn't dynamic. It wasn't exciting. It just didn't do it for me. And I saw this cover, and it was just a breath of fresh air. It's it's so cool. You've got this big tornado-looking thing. It's it's all whirly and swirly. It, it's a giant figure, like, emerging from the rocks, and there's lightning and dark clouds all around. And you've got the superheroes are all just trying to fight it. You've got Superman flying through the center of it. You've got Green Lantern blasting it. You've got firestorms blasting it and then you've got wonder woman and uh, and the flash in there too and it just it's just such a cool image it's hard to describe other than just say it's really neat and it just really thrilled me and i was like oh my god this is this art is just so you know so different 
and it really, really caught me. So I, I bought the issue, and uh, and it just has become one of my favorites over the years. So <clears throat> the story in this is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by George Perez. Inker on this one is John Beatty. Letterer is Ben Oda. Colorist is Carl Gafford. The story is called Secret of Genesis. And I really wish Dr. Bill was here to give his... Uh, Star Trek Three alien impression going, Genesis, because I can't do it, but he can. So anyway, synopsis. So take the mightiest superheroes on Earth, each an invincible champion of justice, band them together in a common cause against crime and evil, and you have the Justice League of America. A dark figure emerges from New York's East River and stands lurking in shadow outside the abandoned East Side, uh, excuse me, East Side Marina restaurant, listening as, inside, the twisted inventor T.O. Morrow monologues in front of the still silent form of his greatest creation, the android leaguer known as the Red Tornado. There is a flaw in the tornado's design, says Morrow and he intends to find out what it is, even if it means dismantling the hero. Having heard all he needed to, Aquaman bursts through the huge picture window, intent on nabbing Morrow. But the villain is too quick for the Sea King and blasts him with his scepter, knocking him back through the glass and back out into the river where he quickly sinks, encased in something that looks like an ice sheath. Morrow swings his power scepter in an arc, and he and the tornado vanish. In the apartment of Kathy Sutton, longtime friend of the Red Tornado, Firestorm the Nuclear Man has just returned to report to Wonder Woman and an injured Batman that he's had no luck in finding the android. A moment later, the Flash runs up the side of the building and into the apartment, likewise reporting no sign of Red Tornado, as does the Man of Steel a moment after that. Clearly, even at full speed, the Red Tornado couldn't have gotten out of range so quickly, they reason, not without help. Looks like T.O. Morrow is back in town, says The Flash. Reminded by Firestorm of his encounter with Morrow in Super Team Family Number 11, which Paul and I covered in our uh, famous Alan Wise episode, and his subsequent incarceration, Flash decides to have a look in the uh, Central City Penitentiary. I'll be right, he says, tossing the Rubik's Cube he's been playing with in the air and running out of the room. Back, he finishes as he streaks back into the room and the cube falls in his waiting palm. Morrow's cell is empty and a check of the prison records reveals he's been missing for two months. Wait a minute, you mean to stand there and tell us you ran all the way across the country to Central City, read those files, and got back here before we could blink an eye, accuses Firestorm? Are you serious? Firestorm, says Wonder Woman, hand on the embarrassed nuclear man's shoulder, why do you think they call him the fastest man alive? Just then, the room is bathed in a green glow as the lantern arrives, towing the lifeless, encased body of Aquaman in his power beam. In the Rocky Mountains, Morrow begins his dissection of the Red Tornado, but something goes very wrong. 22,300 22, miles above the Earth in their orbiting HQ, the Leaguers, Superman, Batman, the Flash, and Green Lantern watch nervously as Wonder Woman uses her Amazonian science to try to free Aquaman from his encasement. Also present is Firestorm, who pisses off the Flash when he muses that there's no way Aquaman can still be alive and that he must have been dead already when the Lantern found him. The Flash pulls the Ute aside and gives him a dressing down about his attitude. After the Flash walks away, Professor Stein gets in on the act, too. 
In the med lab, the sheath, actually crystalline and not simply just ice, breaks and a great plume of steam rises from Aquaman's body. Deducing that he needs water, and quickly, the Amazon princess uses her magic lasso to pull the lever on the emergency sprinkler system from across the room, dousing the lab in a torrential downpour that revives Aquaman just enough to confirm to his teammates that he is indeed, or that it was indeed Morrow. Later in his ruined workshop, Morrow is plucked from the wreckage by a giant green energy fist and suspended before the irate Justice League who demand answers. Morrow pleads his ignorance of what happened and, using his superhearing as a lie detector, Superman confirms he is telling the truth. Lantern puts him down and Morrow immediately blasts them with his scepter, stunning most of the team. But before Morrow can take further advantage of his surprise attack, he is stunned by the emergence of a giant whirling tornado being that sucks him up and throws him against a rock outcropping. The team starts to revive, and Green Lantern asks Wonder Woman if this isn't something they've faced before. She confirms that this is the Tornado Tyrant, a being they faced and defeated years ago. Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and The Flash instantly spring into awesome Perez illustrated action, complete with tons of his trademark rubble, but to no avail as the tyrant takes them all out. Look at him, Firestorm remarks to himself from his concealment. He just wiped out four Justice Leaguers. The young hero prepares to attack, but is stopped by a small whirlwind calling itself the Tornado Champion. It relates to Firestorm its own origin story, how it began existence as the Tornado Tyrant battling Adam Strange on the far-off planet Ran, how it learned from that defeat how good is stronger than evil, how it learned to quash and tamp down its evil side, and, taking inspiration from the Justice League, traveled to Earth 2, where, at the moment of his creation, it merged with the Red Tornado, giving the android, for all intents and purposes, a soul, even if the merger destroyed the champion's memory of itself and its former existence prior to joining with the Red Tornado. Together, the Tornado Champion and Firestorm reason that if the Nuclear Man uses his powers to reconstitute the Red Tornado, that the Champion and the Tyrant will be drawn back into the android and again lose all memory of their existence apart from him. Firestorm delivers the required whammy, and all's well that ends well with a confused but restored Red Tornado back in action. So had you read this one before, Paul? I had. I had picked this up when it came out. <clears throat> oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you know, in some ways I look at this and I think, and, and you know, keep in mind as I'm talking about it that my primary po- purpose here today, we'll talk a little bit about the story, but my primary purpose is to, to marvel at the artwork. Uh, and there's things in here where I think, okay, it's typical George Perez. And then there's some things that are kind of atypical. And I like that. I like the fact that he could vary slightly in his look. He wasn't always totally predictable. Um, when I'm looking at it, like the initial stuff, I, I have to start off with the fact that I'm not really overly familiar with John Beatty. I mean, I've seen some of his inking, but he's not somebody who, whose work I'm very familiar with. Uh, between him and, and Carl Gafford, the colorist, the movie, the, the movie, the book starts off with uh, like it's very dark and foreboding. 
and I think that's really conveyed in the artwork, you know, with, with the, what the three of them did together. Uh, you know, the initial shot, I, I remember when I first saw this, I, you know, I didn't think that was Aquaman. I thought it was like some sort of creature coming out of the water and, and that it was going to be, you know, that that was going to come in and attack them. Uh, and like I said, the shadows and everything as, as the story starts to develop are just really just moody. Uh, when we get to page six, uh, the, the bottom right corner, the shot of Batman, that's a very typical George Perez Batman shot, uh, with, with the shadow yeah. over his face and the, you know, the extra elongated, uh, bat ears. <clears throat> and you, you mentioned the trademark George Perez rubble. <laughs> that's, you know, that is something to, that that's also, uh, you know, very prevalent, uh, you know, it, it goes to what we talked about because there's so many scenes with, with numerous characters in them. And it has that, but the storytelling doesn't lose anything for that. So, so uh, you know, that that's really cool. We You know, we get some tech, some uh, Perez tech as opposed to Kirby tech. Uh, the On page nine, when, when the explosion kind of happens, the, the fading to white, that is a very typical... George Perez and or John Byrne effect. You see, you know, yeah. I could see either one of them doing that very frequently. Uh, I'm trying to think which other things just stood out to me really is, is, you know, just keeping going, moving on to the last page before the insert, which is page 13, the uh, atypical grid for the story is, is really cool. And that's a very, Perez thing. That's also a Neil Adams type thing that you'd see. Uh, then when we get back into it, there was, I, I'm pretty sure I saw, and I'm looking for where it was. I thought there were a couple of panels where it was separated into two panels, but it was kind of a continuation of the same. Unless I'm thinking of something else now. Oh, I think I'm thinking of it from my book, probably. So let's forget that. Uh, <laughs> uh, just, you know, the individual characters, like I, I mentioned earlier, each one of them seems to have their own personality. It, it doesn't seem like, you know, some artists, the faces are almost in- interchangeable, but each one, right. each one seems to have their own, uh, you know, feel about them. I, I think the only, the only subpar shot when I looked at it and I, is, uh, on page 13 in the middle panel, Superman's face is kind of derp. Yeah, I was trying to determine who I thought that looked like. And I, I couldn't quite place it. It actually, it almost looks like his face is inked there by um, Murphy Anderson, who I actually like a lot. I'm a, I'm a big Murphy Anderson fan, but it, it just, yeah, it looks funny. Like if somebody wants to isolate just that part of this panel and ask me who drew that, I would never have been able to come up with George Perez. So yeah, it, it does look a little, a little odd. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that one. I, I noticed the same thing on that. It actually looks like, like Jim Starlin, inked by murphy anderson is kind of what it looks like to me it, it's yeah it just totally does not look like perez but i did notice in this it's funny that one of my big takeaways from this as a kid was how 
awesome Superman looks in this because looking back on it now, I think his figure of Superman is incredible. But often I'm not real crazy about the way his face looks. So it's like he hadn't quite solidified his um, George Perez Superman face just yet. Um, there's really only one panel I'm seeing here where I'm like, okay, that's George Perez Superman, and that's page 18, the little inset where he's talking to Firestorm. That that looks like a classic Perez Superman. But the rest of this, yeah, he's still kind of proto, if you know what I mean. So, hmm. I like his Firestorm throughout it. Well, I mean, I like, yeah. I like almost everybody That's, throughout it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so um, telling, you know, how much he he still had to grow. Because he had done Firestorm prior to this. He'd done both Flash and Firestorm because Firestorm had a brief backup in the pages of the Flash in like the 290s, I think it was of the flash that Perez illustrated. And so he'd drawn both those characters before. I'm trying to remember which other of these justice leaguers he'd drawn, drew at this point. I can't remember, but like wonder woman, this wonder woman is so removed from the wonder woman. He would eventually do post crisis. I mean, completely different. Well, this, this is more of kind of the, typical Wonder Woman of the time as opposed to the right. Wonder Woman, you know, with, with kind of the Perez flair to it. Right. Yeah, this is like Super Friends Wonder Woman. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's generic Wonder Woman effectively. Yeah. Uh, although again, I, I wanna just kind of emphasize though that what you know saying generic uh, is is probably an unfair comment. Uh, you know, per, as, like I said, I think he gives everybody their own individual look. I don't think, you know, you're not going to meld two different women in the book together and think, oh, it's the same person. Just, you know, one's got dark hair, one's got light hair, uh, but they have the same face. That's that's not really what we get here. Uh, it's just, I think when he drew Wonder Woman's book, he, you know, he, he made the character a little bit more his own for the purposes of that book. Whereas here, it's still in the Perez style, but it's fitting the character model, you know, that everybody else would draw at, at the same time. If that makes right. any sense at all. It's It'd been a while, I'll admit, it'd been quite a while since I'd actually dug this out and reread it. Um, you know, so despite the fact that, that, you know, it's a childhood favorite, it's a, it's a story I'd read so many times... You know, it's a story that I, I hold in high regard, you know, and, and largely for the art. I hadn't actually looked at it in a long time. So looking at it again, you know, there were some things I noticed, you know, both positives and, and negatives. Um, but I'm still taken with it. And I was trying to remember, like, why why did this make such a huge impact? I mean, I I think that's the thing that's important to try to put you know my mind but also the listener's mind back to is what preceded this you know what what had the justice league what what did dc 
look like at the time this was coming out. And that's why this made just such a hell of a splash is because you just didn't have anything like this at DC at the time. I mean, that's not to say that there weren't books with good art. There were. I mean, there were there were some books out there, you know, that were doing really good and exciting things. But this is just, I mean, it's a cut above. And it's finally doing, this is going to sound like a terrible pun, but it's finally doing justice to these characters in a way that I'd always felt th- like they should be. And I remember, like, one of, one of the things that was huge for me as a kid with, with these characters was the Mego superheroes, you know, the, 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 the action figures. And I remember just the exciting artwork that would be on the packages of those figures and the, the different licensed image, images that you would see out there for the big guns, you know, your Superman, your Batman, those characters. And just always, whether consciously or subconsciously, wishing that the books reflected more of that style and not... Um, you know, not what they were. And here's here's the thing where I feel funny saying all this because I didn't know at the time, and it wouldn't be for for decades, literally, that I learned this, that the whole reason that Perez got the Justice League gig was because longtime penciler Dick Dillon, he died suddenly. And that's what gave uh, Perez his his break to come over and and do his run on the Justice League. Now that was several issues before this because the the story with um, with uh, the New Gods and you know the Fourth World stuff was already underway when that happened. So that precedes this. That was Perez came in, I believe, at issue like 184 and kind of wrapped that story up. Um, And then after that, there was, uh, I think it was Don Heck was the regular. Well, actually, there was a couple of uh, Rich Buckler issues in there as well. But then Perez came back and and was the regular penciler for a time following, you know, that that interim period where there was a couple like fill-in artists and i don't remember now how those earlier issues escaped my notice it was probably because when i was a kid you know i I was buying these things off the stands from our local uh you know magazine which was actually it was a cigar shop it was a cigar shop that just happened to sell magazines and comics that was uptown in the little town that i lived in and they were primarily Marvel and Charlton. They didn't carry a lot of DC. And what they did was always sporadic. I can remember it seemed like they never got two issues in a row. You know what I mean? It would be like you'd get this issue at Justice League, and then you wouldn't see Justice League again for maybe a couple of issues. So it was really tough collecting these DCs as a kid until... Um, you know, I got the ability to, you know, to, to go on my own to other towns and other places where I could, you know, seek them out better on my own type of thing. 
So to my memory, I, I never saw those other issues. You know, I actually on the stands, the, this one was the one that, that made the big splash because this was my, my first time seeing Perez tackling these characters. Now I'd seen him, you know, in that, that issue of Logan's run that I'm always talking about, you know, I'd seen that, but whether I even made the connection at that time or not, I don't remember. But for me, this was, this was me basically discovering Perez as far as, you know, contemporaneous, you know, something that was actually on the stands and, it just made one hell of an impression that that lasts today, even though I can look at this now and see where this is, you know, this is very early Perez. It's a little rough in places. Um, I don't think he's melding very well with, uh, with John Beatty. Um, a lot of the, you know, the deficiencies of the R or, or issues I would have with the R, I would actually lay more on the inker than I would on Perez. Um, but even with all that, I, I still look at this and just go, wow, you know, compared to what was, this is just, it's a quantum leap forward. It's just so different and so dynamic. And, uh, it's just incredible. And in a lot of ways, especially the, the sequence, you know, once the, the tornado tyrant comes alive and is battering the heroes and throwing all the rubble at them and they're, they're trying to protect themselves and all that, it's almost like a little preview of what's to come because so much of this we would see again um, from Perez in, in other things, you know, with other teams with other events and this is kind of the beginning of that if you know what i mean this is where he's starting to hone that that ability of you know taking this this rather large cast of characters and doing really exciting things with them and not losing anybody that's one of the things i've noticed a lot over the years now especially with us doing this show and and looking at these comics is that that is something that happens a lot in stories that I don't think I ever really noticed before is that sometimes the writer or the artist will lose a character in the telling of it. When you've got a large cast of characters, it's just like they kind of forget about somebody and they just kind of drop out. And that doesn't happen in this Perez keeps track of everybody and, you're able to follow the story spatially as if it's a film, as if you're getting different angles on a, an event that's happening. And that's really cool. I think that's another one of his, his really big hallmarks is his ability to, um, you know, handle this as if it, it's a real space that he's panning around. And that's really neat. I like that a lot. See, I'm I'm, I'm yeah. gonna disagree a little a little bit with you. Uh, I became aware of Perez earlier than this. Um, I'm trying to remember what was first, uh, whether it was the Inhuman series that he worked on, or if he was on the Fantastic Four before that, uh, or if he was on the Avengers before that. I can't remember, but I was fully by the time this came out, I was fully aware of him. 
uh, and his art. And I, I don't see this as early un, unrealized George Perez. Uh, I, you know, I, I hate the fact that we were always just kind of shitting on the inkers, but I feel like, like the, the, <laughs> the areas where I'm seeing a little bit of deficiency here, here, I, I am putting it at the, at the hands of the inker because the layouts here are, are, are great. Uh, the the individual faces and everything I, I think you know look really really solid to me. The only times that it doesn't is there's a couple of shots to me that look like they're a little bit rushed, um, and and I'm always going to put that on the inker if they're rushed because it's the inker's job to make sure it never looks like it's rushed, even even if the artist is giving him you know thumbnail sketches and not really giving him full you know full fully rendered art, it's up to the inker to take it from there. I, and I don't, right. I don't think that Perez was giving him unrealized art here. I think he was given art that that was fully laid out for him. And and you know, some areas maybe the anchor was a little rushed or whatever, or maybe he just kind of took some shortcuts. But I I don't see it as being a deficiency in Perez's artwork. And I, I totally agree with you that once the uh, the tornado, uh, you know, appears. Uh, it gets even more dynamic. That's that, but that's not to say that the art earlier is is poor in any way. Uh, I, I I think you know the the art takes on this this frantic pace to it that that is is reflecting what's going on with the heavy winds and everything, and and I I think it it conveys that really really well until then you get you know uh, firestorm talking to the. Uh, tornado champion and it's like it calms down again and i i just think it's you know it's all really really put together so well uh and and especially i look at that splash page where, where they're fighting the uh tyrant and the heroes are tiny in it the the tornado is is the big image and it's you know it, it's just a collection of, of you know slightly arced lines really but it just is effective just the same and i think that that goes to show how how he you know how he could just put this image together in his mind and and know how to put it onto paper in a way that that was going to look dynamic because you know it, like i said the heroes are tiny on it and yet it, it looks like a poster so it, it's it's right. it's wonderful it's it's great artwork i i don't think this is perez before he found his uh, way i think this is perez already knowing his way I can see that. I, I looked real real quick here to see what was the history um, with those titles that you mentioned. So, um, Inhumans came first. So that was like right after he had worked on um, Manwolf in Creatures on the Loose. Then he he was on uh, Inhumans. So so that would have been. And, I I think I had issues of creatures on the loose that he had drawn but i hadn't really taken notice of him so the first time that i took notice of him then was on the inhumans that i became aware that that this was an artist who's who's who i who i i like the cut of his jib right i uh i'm positive i had at least one of his creatures on the loose myself and and whether i made that connection between because see like that Logan's Run issue, the Creatures on the Loose, those were back issues to me. And 
even though they're only a couple years before this, for some reason in my mind as a kid, when I got a back issue, to me, they were old, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. This wasn't something that, that had just been out recently. This was this was some old discovery. And so I don't think I associated the, the art in those with this um, for, for some time. Um, he also, yeah, almost immediately after starting in humans then he was on simultaneously the avengers and the the fantastic four um as well as doing um you know other other projects you know other things as well uh logan's run deadly hands of kung fu and all of that but he goes pretty much straight from avengers and ff to coming over to uh coming right over to DC off of that and did uh, those few issues of the flash I talked about and then started in on, uh, on justice league. So, I mean, the guy, once, once he took off, you know, once he started to catch on, it was one high profile thing after another. And I mean, mm-hmm. just doing simultaneously the Avengers and the FF. I mean, that's, you know, for a brand new artist just coming along, it's like, holy cow, man. I mean, he hit the big league with both feet, you know? Yeah, and I, I may sound like a broken record because I keep saying it, but uh, I, I think when you when you consider the number of characters he was drawing, it just it's worth emphasizing that he, he made everybody have their own personality the way he drew them, and that was important. I, yeah, no, definitely, because... Um, you know, the other big artist that we, we've mentioned several times, John Byrne, um, now as much as I love that guy and you know, I'm a huge fan of his art, he lacks that ability in my opinion. Now, I do not agree with the thing that's been on there, you know, out there a lot, you know, over the years in the internet and fanzines and everything that, oh, everybody he draws looks the same. I don't agree with that. However, he does kind of have like stock faces and bodies, if you know what I mean. And and he doesn't seem to have the the wide repertoire of faces and bodies that George Perez does. And that that to me is a that is a big distinction between the two of those guys as, in my mind, the two top dogs of nineteen eighties comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that 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 is definitely one area where Perez had the leg up on John Byrne was having distinct uh, faces and bodies for each of the characters that he drew. I, I you know, you you very seldom would look at uh, a, a Perez character and go, "Oh, that's just Superman with different hair," or you know, whatever. You know, where whereas that happens, unfortunately, quite often with. Um, some of Burns' work, especially some of his later work, where yeah, characters started to t- kind of look like each other a lot. Well, that was I, the one I point to all the time is you know if, if they it, and it really uh, there were a lot of artists that would do this, so I don't even want to single one out. But when they'd have an Avengers book and you'd have without you know the characters without their masks on, and you'd have Hawkeye standing next to Hank Pym standing next to Captain America, and if they didn't have the uniform on, you would have no <laughs> idea which one was which. Right, right, yep, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, but yeah, exactly, definitely. Uh, let's see what else I, I did have. Oh, um, 
So in John Beatty's defense, I looked this up. This was only his third published assignment, according to Mike's Amazing World. So he was uh, pretty new, unless there's other things out there that he did that just aren't on Mike's Amazing World because they were with other companies or something like yeah, that. Mike was pretty comprehensive well, for all in his site, so I, I would imagine he's got it covered. Right. So, you know, this this is early. And while I'm not terribly familiar with him, um, the name was kind of tickling my brain, so I, I was looking at his work. He went on to ink Mike Zeck on Captain America, and that stuff is gorgeous. Mm. So, you know, he he gets better. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, no problem there. Now, this has nothing to do with, with Perez, of course, but if you'll indulge me on this, I was curious about one thing story-wise in this issue. So at the very end of the story... After, you know, Firestorm has, has reintegrated Red Tornado's body and basically all is well that ends well, he, he lands on this, whatever this is, mountaintop or whatever where Red Tornado is. And Red Tornado asks him, he goes, what am I doing here? And he and Firestorm thinks to himself in his mind, he says, I could tell you, friend, but I won't. I won't ever tell anyone. And I'm thinking, okay, what did he tell the Justice League then? How does this story wrap up in the official Justice League, you know, computer files or whatever, if he's determined to keep it all a secret? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't really considered that, to be honest with you. Um. My last note for this is uh, this story has been reprinted. I was very happy to find out. In uh, There was a 2009 hardcover called Justice League of America by George Perez, uh, Volume 1, which leads me to believe that there's multiple volumes, I guess. But apparently it, it reprints um, his run on Justice League, so that's really cool. I, I've never seen it, but I'd be very curious to see... Uh, you know, what it looks like. Did they touch it up or recolor or anything like that? But uh, just, just the fact that it it is out there, it has been reprinted, that makes me really happy because, damn, do I love this issue. Yeah, no, it, it's... It, and it's kind of a cool story, even from the perspective of, you know, that it's got a little historical weight to it because it's giving, a you know, an origin or changing the origin of the Red Tornado, explaining why... He is what he is. It's, I, I like the fact that it differentiates him more from the Vision, because I almost felt like there were times where those two characters felt interchangeable. Right. Yeah. Very much so. so yeah. So I kind of like that. I always liked Red Tornado. Yeah. I always liked Red Tornado, but I liked him in a very vague sense, mostly because he just looked cool. You know, he had a really cool look. But as far as a character, I was kind of like, eh, you know, he's, he's, yeah, like you said, he's like vision light. Um, and this, to my mind anyway, was kind of a, a step toward giving him a little bit more somehow. Yeah. No, I, I agree with, with you there. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm glad to, to distinguish them a little bit so that he isn't just vision light. He's a character of his own. Right. So, I guess we could rate this one and then talk about the next one. 
Sure. Um, I uh, I completely, <clears throat> pardon me, lack all objectivity when it comes to this particular thing because it is just such a, a childhood favorite of mine and everything. So um, I, I think I would just have to go straight A's across the board. I, I just, I, I love it. Um, particularly the cover. As a matter of fact, the cover, I, I think I'd actually give an A+. Plus. Damn, I wish I could find like a, a T-shirt or a, a poster or something of this because I just love this image. Um, it just it just speaks to me. It's just so cool. Um, my my only I mean if I if I had to find something negative to, or, or you know whatever to say about it, my only thing is um, it does occur to me that it's not the full roster that's in the story because it lacks Batman, it lacks Aquaman, but. I mean that's just quibbling. I mean it's just it's an incredibly dynamic image that did exactly what it was supposed to do. It got, you know, thirteen year old me to, to pick it up off the stands and, and make that purchase. You know, separate me from my two quarters. And it worked and uh, and you know, all these years later I still hold this up as, as one of my favorite issues from my childhood. I just it just works for me. It's a, I think it's a really good story. Now, it's important to point out that this is part two of this story. Well, I wouldn't get part one for, it's probably decades. I, I wouldn't track down a copy of that. So it's incredible that it works completely on its own. You, you really don't need the first part, and I don't think the first part's even, uh, even encapsulated, which was kind of a thing that comics did back then, but they really don't waste the time here. Um, you just kind of pick up the story as it's going, and I never felt like I missed anything. Um, that's not to say that part one's not great, too, because part one is also, you know, it's the same people. It's also Perez, and the uh, the art on that one's fantastic as well. And it's it's also got some really good, you know, super daring do and fights and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, that one's definitely, you know, if you're a Perez fan, that one's definitely worth tracking down as well, but... Uh, like I say, you know, this this was the one I got, and uh, you know it's kind of self-contained. So, yeah, love this, top to bottom, just love it. Okay, uh, I I would say you know your nitpick on it, just so I could comment on that is, I'm a lot more bothered when there's heroes shown in a fight scene like that that aren't in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but I am that they omitted a hero, so this this right. this doesn't bother me at all. Um, I you know you you acknowledge it as a nitpick, and I think as a nitpick it it it's valid, but it it, it is what it is. Uh, I think the cover is really good. I, I I'm disappointed that they have this cover uh, on the month when they decided to have the uh, free giveaway for the All Star Squad. because yeah. this. I, I think this would look even more spectacular if it was the entire page just with the Justice League logo at the top. So, yeah. I, you know, uh, but you, you can't fault Perez for the fact that they added extra things on the page. So uh, it's an A plus on the on the uh, on the cover, uh, the interior art. And again, I don't want to rag on John Beatty, and I feel like we're constantly shitting on inkers. Uh, but <laughs> just the same, I, I, I think it's an A, uh, which could have been an A+, plus, except I do have some quibbles with the inking. Uh, and the story is the story's pretty cool. You know, it gives you 
background for the Red Tornado. It, it, it presents them with a villain that they couldn't, you know, out punch, uh, that they had to come up with a different solution. And the solution ends up being the explanation for why Red Tornado is who he is. So it's, it's all put together pretty well and it's kind of cool. And uh, I'm going to say an A on the story as well. So that's it for the first book. So I chose Avengers number four, uh, which has a cover date of May of 1998, and it was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World, on March 25th of 1998. And I didn't choose this because it had that same connection with me. Most of the books that have the connection with me, like you, would be ones when I was younger. Uh, you know, when I was first right. first learning who Perez was and that, that caught my eye and, and I found exciting. And I think for the most part, either we've covered a lot of those already or uh, they just didn't feel like they were the right one to cover this time out. I, I wanted to cover a book which had a lot of characters in it. And this book, you know, definitely fits that mold. Uh and I wanted one that, that that just you know seems to be universally accepted as as a as a top book. And again, like I did with Neil Adams, I looked up you know you know what are the ten best George Perez books. This one was on the list. So uh, you know it, obviously a list like that is going to be very subjective, but I, I I think it fit the mold of what I wanted, so I, I went with it. And I remember you know this run. This was after they did the. Uh, which called the, the the heroes reborn. Uh, they came back and and they did a run with uh, Busiek and and Perez, where they were in medieval times. And then this was the issue that picked right. up after that. Uh, the cover is you know and oh and that was another reason why this one stood out to me is because it's a who's going to be on the Avengers issue, and I yeah. always enjoy those. At one some point, I think we talked about kind of doing a retrospective on that and doing all of those issues one at a time, uh, which is I would love to because to my mind, my my first, you know, where, where the Avengers became something that was on my radar was that the one I want to say it's two twenty one, but I'm probably wrong. But it's the one it's it's one of those who will be on the Avengers, and it's the the grid. And I remember one of them is Rom the Space Knight. And for some reason, that's still like my favorite Avengers cover ever. Was that? It's such a plain cover, but it just popped for me as a kid. So yeah. Yeah, So the time may come where we where we do that as a retrospective. First, we'll have to finish our Thing Hulk one anyway. Right. Uh, Which we still have a ways to go on that. But uh, this is uh, (laughs) written by uh, Kurt Busiek, penciled by George Perez. Inked by Al Vey, who I just wish his parents had named him Oi, uh, and, and, and Bob Wyacek, colored by Tom Smith, lettered by Richard Starkings, Comic Craft, and Dave Lampier, edited by Tom Brevoort. Uh, and the cover says, Who Will Be the Avengers? And it's got a big A on it, and then inside the A is a multitude of Avengers faces, uh, and then for some reason, not in the A is the Wasp, who's kind of you know shrunk down, but in front of the A, uh, and you can see that you know she's not within the lines. Uh, so the story picks up from where they had left off with the uh, the medieval story where they fought 
uh, Morgan Le Fay, and it opens up with a news broadcast of Whirlwind uh, attacking a, a bank when he's confronted by all of the Avengers who came back from this adventure. And when I say all of the Avengers, I mean all of the Avengers. It's a, it's a huge group that come after him. And although Whirlwind is no match for this group by any stretch of the imagination, there are so many of them that they get in each other's way, and he ends up making his way out of there. Uh, and they're, they're all extremely embarrassed. While this is going on, the... Uh, core Avengers. They they call them the original Avengers because they retroactively voted Captain America in, uh, which they actually explain in the story. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, he's not an original Avenger. He's a core Avenger. He's one of the uh, you know the, one of the, the main people, which is uh, Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, the Wasp, and uh, Hank Pym in whatever identity he's got at the moment. And they're meeting with uh, Dwayne. Freeman, who is the new government liaison, uh, replacing uh, Henry Peter Gyrich, and they have to make a determination as to who the Avengers are going to be, and they, you know, they understand that they can't have as many as, as as were involved, and they start off by saying, well, some of them have already left already. Stingray left, the Sandman left, uh, and it is an interesting side note that the Sandman was a reserve Avenger at that time. Photon is left, Firebird is left, Darkhawk is left, Spider-Woman is left, the Living Lightning has left, and the Black Widow has left. So then they start looking at, you know, who, who's going to stay in and who's not. Uh, and, it, you know, there's a lot of dialogue here, but while the dialogue is going on, there's uh, various angles going, and, and the, the pictures are showing the characters at different, again, different angles, different focuses it, it really is you know feeling like a, a a movie that's going back and forth from character to character uh and i'm kind of giving my commentary as i uh re- as i give the synopsis but uh <laughs> jan looks to me like she's not photo referenced as we or not you know that we talked about but it looks like she's cast by somebody you know you, you talked in the past about casting uh and I'm seeing, uh, what was her name, Didi something, Didi Khan, who was in Greece and, uh, and a couple of other things at the time. That's whose face I'm seeing here, but I don't know if that's who it is. But I definitely think that, that Perez was casting somebody in the role. I don't think it's just coming out of his imagination. Anyway, we cut from there to, uh, to Scarlet Witch, who's uh, got the vision in or the or who's sitting in front of where the vision is in in a chamber where he's being reconstructed but while that's going on uh he appears to her in a hologram because his mind is still working it's just got to be his body has to be repaired uh but he also uh you know lets her know that because he had been destroyed as far as he's concerned he had died and therefore he, he releases her from her marital vows uh she clearly doesn't want this but accepts it and walks away and then there's a great shot of the vision right there you know the hologram where you could just see the pain on his face because obviously he was doing that to spare her and not for his own purposes uh we cut to a press conference where uh, the she-hulk is talking to the media about what's going to go on uh and that you know she's going to be leaving and crystal and, and pietro are leaving and uh Hawkeye is sitting inside with a couple of the other Avengers. 
uh, including Hercules and the Falcon and Moondragon. And there's a really cool shot where you see Hercules sitting on a chair and behind him is, a, a, I guess, a painting of Hercules in his older outfit. So you're getting both outfits at the same time, oh, which yeah. is really just a nice touch. And they're all debating, you know, what's going to go on. Hawkeye's all uptight about if he's going to be on the team. But, you know, Hercules is telling them just, you know, chill out and relax and wait. Uh, Falcon and, and is is a, in a similar mode. Moondragon is condescending, as always, and, and annoying people. Uh, then we, we go from them to uh, Rage and Firestar and Justice, who uh, want to follow up on, on Whirlwind, who they've just heard about. So there's a lot of, lot of different balls in the air here. Uh, we go back to Hawkeye, who's talking to uh, Captain Marvel, and she walks off and then talks to the Beast, and she's you know in a, in a life dilemma now, too, about her powers and what's going on. Cut back to Wanda, where she's agonizing over what just went on, and you could see uh, was it Wonder Man reconstructing himself in the background. Uh, then we get a lot of individual statements from different Avengers. We have Scarlet Witch, we have Quasar, we have uh, Cersei. Uh, I'm not sure, I forget who the next character is. Uh, we have a, a, a rendition of the Swordsman, who I'm not really familiar with, uh, the Submariner. I was going to ask you about that, because I noticed him from when the full roster charges in at the beginning. I was like, wait, that's swords, the Swordsman. I thought he was dead. It, it's not the same guy. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure what his story is. Uh, we have Submariner. We have Machine Man, Black Panther. And I think they're all basically saying that you know, for the most part, that they're not available to be on the team. And Hank is starting to worry about, if, are they going to even have enough people to fill up the roster? Uh, right. D-Man D is leaving with two bags of groceries <gasps> that Jarvis gave him. My favorite! <laughs> he, That's a joke, by the way. He is not my favorite adventure. <laughs> I don't know. I have you on. I have a recording where you say he's your favorite. <laughs> yeah, but who, did, who else did I say was my favorite adventure? I forgot. Green Lantern. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but so he mentions, you know, Jarvis let him take a shower and gave him these groceries. But to avoid <laughs> the press, he he leaves by by going through the sewer, which is just, you know, it's it's very gross. Anyway, um, Star Fox and Tiger are leaving, and you know they're both party animals. But Moon Dragon is leaving at the same time. And, Feels the need to be a bitch to them. Uh, Carol. <laughs> That's her super. That is her super. She's got super bitchiness. Uh, Carol is starting to look over at the uh, the bar because now she's got her own alcohol problem. And Tony, in his Iron Man armor, sees this and is taking note of it. We cut to Whirlwind as he's confronted by uh, Justice and Firestar. And they, they actually. You know, they confront him pretty quickly, and we cut while they're still fighting. We go back to the uh, boardroom where they're, uh, you know, deciding on who's going to be on the team. Uh, I like that there's a coffee mug that says Earth's Mightiest Coffee. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's a debate going on, different names being mentioned, and agreed or disagreed, including, you know, Tony giving his uh, concerns about Ms. Marvel. Uh, this is what I was talking about earlier on the 
second from the bottom uh it's two panels but it's basically showing the same perspective on both it's kind of a continuation right. of the same thing and i think the purpose of that is just to let you know that a little bit of time passed because captain america mentions what about u.s agent then we have a break in the panel we have another panel everybody's looking at him and then there's a shot of the wasp saying so uh where's hawkeye so I think what they're trying to tell you is, in between him saying that and the second panel, there's a couple of seconds that go by. So then Hawkeye sees uh, Justice and, and Firestar taking out uh, Whirlwind so easily, and uh, says that you know he he he's going to back them up for uh, membership on the team, and he he. Uh, he says this to the core of it, the core team, who say, "Well, he, he could have your spot," <laughs> which which does not make him happy. Uh, but ultimately, they make them uh, reserve Avengers, which Justice agrees to very very happily. Uh, and then they go out and they're introduced to the uh, press and the crowd, and ended off with yelling out a big Avengers assemble. And it's it's concluded with Hawkeye saying, and the crowd goes wild. So our team at this point is Hawkeye, Thor, Scarlet Witch, Captain America, Ms. Marvel, Iron Man, and the Vision with uh, Firestar and Justice as reserve Avengers in training. Now, we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned about the uh, coloring system that Marvel had purchased Malibu to uh, get access to and we were wondering was it before this or after this and it was before this we looked it up Uh, and you could see a definite difference in the coloring in this book as compared to say that Justice League book we just looked at right now was it just a coloring system or was it was it an altogether printing system because I I thought it was a coloring system but I could be wrong okay maybe it was so <clears throat> here's where I've got to be careful on this. I really like the artwork here. I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, it's incredible work by, by Perez. He's clearly, by this point, I mean, you know, the, the, the legend. However, this, this run, um, I don't know if it, if it, if it stays this way for the entire run, because this run, when Perez came back and did the Avengers for Volume Three here with Busick, this was like thirty something issues, right? Like thirty four, I think, issues. So I don't know if this lasts for the for the whole run or not. But I find it looks funny, and, uh, and not art wise. It, it's in the ability to actually look at it, and it has to do with two things. It has to do with the coloring, because I think. I think the the basic problem is that it's overcolored, if you know what I mean. Um, it's it's hard to describe it, but uh, let me see if I can find a good example of it. Like, um, it's, right, I think so you know. Ex- I'm thinking what what you're saying. If I'm reading it correctly, or if I'm understanding it correctly, it's like it's oversaturated. It's too bright. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's too bright. It's. Um, well, like, damn, pages aren't numbered, but all right. So on the page after the opening splash, the title page that says "Too Many Avengers," look at the next page. 
Now, that page, in theory, is much like the page when the Justice League was battling the Tornado Tyrant near the end of the story that we just looked at. The, the layout is, is very similar. There's, they're battling a similar style hero with the Whirlwind. Yet, one was very pleasing to the eye and very easy to follow the action and what's going on and one is not so much and I and I can only see that the difference is two things it's the coloring it's just way over colored I think every single thing has its own distinct color and shade and effect but then also I was tempted to put it on the inker, but I don't think it's Alvey's inks. I think it's something in the printing process isn't sharp. It, it's it's slightly fuzzy, and I, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's this new coloring process. I don't know if it's the paper, if it's the printing process. I, I can't put my finger on it, but between the two, it's not as it's not as easy on the eye as it should See, be. I'm thinking that it's the beginning <clears throat> of the era where artists started using computers as they worked and that they could adjust things right. on the computer. And that's what it feels like to me. There's, there's, there's areas where it almost looks like the lines are too perfect almost at points, uh, which is kind of a stupid yeah. stupid thing to say in theory, but in reality it feels right. Uh, no, no, it's it's not, because, and I think you've hit on something, because this is something I talked a little bit about during our Adams retrospective, is the same problem I have when you take old Neil Adams stories, like say an old Batman story that you may have read as a kid, that was on shitty newsprint paper in the 70s, and now you've printed it on bright, white, glossy paper in some hardcover reprint, and it just looks funny. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of sort of the same thing here, is that these are guys, and I'm talking, you know, Adams, Perez, Byrne, you know, all those those great classic guys these are guys that came up in that era of learning to draw and compensate for shitty paper you know for a shitty printing process now he's not having to compensate for that and does it look funny You know what I'm yeah. saying? And, it, and it, again, that's not I'm not slagging him because there's nothing wrong with the art. The art's amazing. It's just there's something about this coloring and printing process that I don't feel entirely um, favors his art or help. You know, you know what I'm saying? That 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 complements his art. See, I think does that make sense? No, it, it makes total sense. But to me. It's not so like I, I look at it and I'm I'm fine with it, but I just think it feels different, and that's that's what that's yes. what I have. It's not to me. It's not that it it it's not hard for me to read because of it. It's not hard. It, it, I 
don't find it in any way bothersome, but it just feels like a different animal. Uh, you know, you compare this to something he drew 20 years earlier, even if the artwork is of the same quality, it's still going to look different based on, you know, whatever processes they used. So it's, it's almost like it's just that it takes a mental adjustment to get comfortable with it. Right. But, right. But I, but I am able to be comfortable with this, to be honest with you. It, it's, I, I don't, I'm not troubled by it, but I can see the difference. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I collected this whole run. I read this whole run. I really enjoyed it a lot. I mean, not only is the art just, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's Perez just at the top of his game. Um, but you know, the stories were really good too. And I, I felt like he and, uh, and Busick were a really good combo. So yeah, I really enjoyed this era, but because of my issues with this, whatever this is, this printing process, color process, whatever it is, I, I wasn't at quite as fond of this artwork as, as some of the classic stuff. And I remember fearing for a time that, not that he was losing it or anything, as, as some artists unfortunately do, you know, their styles mutate and, and you just don't enjoy them as much, but just somehow that it just didn't feel the same to me. But I'm trying to remember, who was he paired with on... JLA Avengers because I remember when I saw that I was like okay he, he's back type of thing you know what I mean like and and so I think I, I think there's there's a number of factors going on here because there's there's later work that he did than this that I think is just amazing Actually, it says JLA Avengers. He's listed as the only artist. So did he ink himself on that? I'm trying to look now uh, to see. Uh, yeah, the only credits I'm seeing on Mike's Amazing World, it just lists him. It doesn't list a uh, an inker. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not seeing anybody else listed either. So I'm, I'm going to have to accept that it is, uh, <laughs> which I'm usually not a, I, you know, as much as we should, as much as we shit on anchors, uh, I, I actually in uh, the DC database for JLA Avengers number one, it's penciled by George Perez, inked by George Perez. Uh, I'm usually not a big fan of people inking themselves because the vision becomes too limited based upon that, in my opinion. Uh, but right. in that instance, I thought he did a great job. So, to every rule, there's an exception. But I, I'm, you know, like I said, I was comfortable with this book. I, I thought the artwork in this book was really solid. I, I don't have any issue with it at all, even with the processes. Uh, I find the most distinctive thing in it is, for whatever reason, the way he drew Jan's face. Uh, like I say, it just really jumps out at me is that it's it's based on somebody. Yeah, now that you've pointed that out, I, I agree with you. It does look like he's he's modeling her on someone. I just don't know who it is. <clears throat> going to Didi Khan, but I don't know if that's her. Yeah, I, I'm not sure who that is. I, she was like I said, she was in Greece and some other things. If you saw her, you'd probably say, "Oh yeah, I know who that is." Uh, 
But anyway, uh, I guess you can rate this. <laughs> I, sure. The cover is, is fairly simple because it's the big A with the faces in it, and then you know it says who will be the Avengers. If you look at the background, which is hardly even noticeable, there's little question marks all over it. Uh, but the faces that are drawn in it are all really, really solid, and it's a very catchy-looking cover, even though there's a lot of blank space, which is not usually one of my favorite things. Uh, I think it's it's very eye-catching, and if I wasn't already buying the Avengers, it would make me interested in buying this. So I'm going to say an A on the cover. The interior art, I'm very happy with the interior art, to be totally honest. I like the, the storytelling. I like the... Uh, you know the different ways he's going with the panels uh the only aspect of it that's kind of lacking and i think it's intentional is uh they start to show the fight with whirlwind and the next thing you know he's just you know jammed into the wall and defeated like they don't show them defeating him <laughs> and i think that's intentional but uh you know i would have liked to have seen because chris perez does such good fight choreographing i would have liked to have seen a little bit more but that's Again, that's a nitpick. We have, you know, I, I don't know if it's a billion characters in this, somewhere around there. Uh, and he, again, he gives everybody their own <laughs> distinct look. He, he's doing a lot of facial close-ups, and, and we don't lose a step on it. There is, you know, some action sequences in it. I, I'm going to say an A-plus on the interior art. And the story, considering there's so much dialogue and exposition that goes on uh i think it's all really well put together so i'm going to give busiak an a as well yeah this is a top-notch book um i love this cover um i'm trying to remember if this was ever um ever like a t-shirt or anything like that but it, it it's definitely lends itself to something like that if it never was um, but I love this. I'm a sucker for this style of Avengers cover because, again, it harkens back to that that old one that I loved so much. So, yeah, that, this is just an A-plus for me. I love this cover. Um, the story is great. I mean, I, I loved this whole run of uh, of Avengers with, with Busick and, and Perez together. I thought it was top-notch stuff. So, yeah, I think I'd give the, the overall book uh, you know, a straight-up A. Uh, possibly even an A plus. I mean, I, my my quibbles with, um, you know, the, the the appearance of the art have nothing to do with Perez. So you know, I want to make that clear. I wasn't dogging on him in any way. It's just something about the way this is printed on the page just just looks off. <clears throat> pardon me, looks off to me somehow, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But that it, it's not the artwork. The artwork is is flawless. I, I think. Again, I think this is Perez at the top of his game. I mean, this is when he's, you know, he's really honed his craft. He's shaken out all the bugs, and, and he is the, the Perez of legend here. I mean, you know, by this time, he had done so many projects and so many team books and events and everything that, you know, he, he just, he had this down to a science. And that's evident through the whole issue because, um you know, while there are clear action sequences and everything, for the most part, um, this is one of those kind of uh, downtime issues. You know, there's a lot of exposition. 
And a lot of exposition could really lend itself very easily to being a very boring book. And this is not boring. I mean, visually, it's stunning. Even when they're just sitting around a table talking, just the different angles, the different faces, the body language. Um, one of my favorites here is uh, the page where, again, they're not numbered, unfortunately, but um, Cap is making a point, and he says, um, I think at least three founders should stay. And it's a very simple panel of just, it shows him and, and sitting slightly behind him to one side is Iron Man. And Cap is holding up the number three with his, you know, his gloved hand. And it's it's just subtle things like that. Um, so it, it makes it really look like an actual snapshot of time in this actual conversation that we're reading as opposed to just a pose or, you know, these two superheroes are in this room type of thing. It, it actually looks like a moment of a, an active conversation. And it's it's that little type of thing that, that makes these type of sequences so interesting is the you know the facial expressions, the body language and uh, and I love that he just throws so much detail into the backgrounds of these things. You know, the thing you pointed out with Hercules sitting in front of his own portrait and you know, it made me actually pay more attention to the rest of the mansion and all the other portraits. There's a lot of other portraits uh, scattered all throughout the mansion. It also made me appreciate, um, you know, this is right in the 90s. And, you know, the, the, the 90s has a dubious reputation um, for a lot of reasons, and a lot of it's deserved. And one of the big reasons that gets the rep that it does are there are so many, so many shitty outfits that characters <laughs> were wearing during the 90s. And there's a lot of them in this <laughs> issue. So it's really a testament to Perez that he can still make this work and, and still make a, a really dynamic and visually interesting uh, issue out of uh, a roster where so many of the characters are not at their visual best. I mean, the Falcon's out. What the hell is he wearing? He looks ridiculous. The Sandman's outfit is its like he's wearing a bathrobe or something. Um, Rage has always been a really goofy-looking character. Hercules' new outfit is atrocious. And then I had forgotten that Whirlwind adopted this weird, like, it's like he's got some cross between, like, claws and, like, a highlight scoop or something <laughs> on his arm. He just looks really weird. Yeah, um, I think it's, I I like think it's supposed to be, like, razor edges and stuff. Yeah. It just looks awful, though. I mean, he's one of my favorite villains, um, mostly because he was in the old arcade game. But he just looks so silly here. And uh, Justice has a really goofy look to him, too. But, you know, Paris makes it work, and, and it all comes together. And it, it's, you know, and uh, Hank Pym's new outfit looks really, yeah, that one looks really wonky, too. So, you know, for so many of the characters to have, you know, not their best look, it, it, still, it still looks awesome. It still comes together. So, yeah, I like this one a lot. Yeah. 
This this was a fun era. Yeah, it was definitely. I loved their uh, their rematch with um, oh, what was his name? Count Nefaria was really epic in this. This is where uh, they had that big fight with Ultron, where they won the what was it like the Wizard Award or something like that for like best book or I think something. We covered that when the, when uh, the Age of Ultron movie came out. I think we covered one of those issues. Oh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, that was good stuff. So yeah, this this was a really good era. Yeah, definitely. So, I guess in closing, uh, you know, much like with Neil Adams, I just appreciate what uh, George Perez gave us over the years, and uh, you know, it's his his presence in the industry. Un- unfortunately, just uh, you know, he he was having issues with his eyesight, I think, due to diabetes, and he had pretty much retired anyway. Uh, but his presence in the industry is going to be missed on a, on an artistic level. And as I said, I, I, you know, he always struck me as somebody who was very personable. So on, on a personal level as well, you know, his appearances at conventions and stuff will definitely uh, be missed. Absolutely. I guess we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And next week, uh, I can't say we'll have two better books, but we will have a happier show. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.